The Secret to Happiness, according to Socrates. Socrates drew a kind of equation between knowledge and goodness and happiness. Knowledge helps you make the correct, ethical, good decisions, and that's what will generate the most happiness. That's Deborah Lehman. We talk with her about her book, Socrates, A Life Worth Living. It's a YA book that can appeal to readers of all ages. Then, another YA book for everyone. We talk with Dr. Seema Yasmin about her guide to inoculating ourselves against false information. What the fact, finding the truth in all the noise. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. And hey, do you know you can go to writersvoice.net to find extra content with links, book excerpts, and extended interviews? Socrates may be the most famous philosopher who ever lived, at least in the Western canon. But what was his philosophy really about? And does it have any relevance to us in the modern world? My guest, Deborah Lehman, sets out to answer the first question, what was Socrates' philosophy really about, through her highly readable biography of the sage, Socrates, A Life Worth Living. And while she firmly situates him within his own historical context, Lehman also shows that his philosophy of what makes life worth living not only has universal relevance, but also special salience for our troubled times. Deborah Lehman is the author of two biographies of philosophers, Socrates and Spinoza. In addition to these two, she's working on biographies of Augustine of Hippo and Hannah Arendt for the Philosophy for Young People series from Seven Stories Press. Deborah Lehman, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you. It's nice to be here with you. Socrates, a life worth living. I, I guess we can tell what the book is really about by the subtitle because Socrates was all about a life worth living. Tell us a little bit about what that meant to him. What it meant principally was not taking any of our assumptions for granted, questioning our values constantly, recognizing that sometimes uh, we're absolutely wrongheaded. It also meant not accepting a lot of his society's values, which um, are shockingly very similar to um, a lot of society's values today, not believing that happiness is to be found through wealth, not believing that it's to be found through public honor, you know, how many likes you get on your webpage and all of that. You know, also for him, which, you know, is perhaps more controversial, it was staying away from uh, politics. And that was a particular situation that, ar that arose in his day. But for the most part, it's really very, very relevant, very telling to our age. Yeah, that really became obvious as uh, the more I read into this wonderful book. Tell us a little bit about Socrates. Who was he? When did he live? What was his background? 
Well, he lived in the 5th century BCE, um, ancient Athens, and it's actually the Athens that we all think about. You know, I, I know in my day, you know, we studied, oh, Athens versus Sparta. It's the Athens of um, the building of the Parthenon. It's the Athens of history developing. Thucydides um, was one of his contemporaries. It's the Athens of the Peloponnesian War, the you know Delian League against the Peloponnesian League. It's all of that kind of classic ancient Athens um, when he lived. He was not from a prominent family, um, a kind of you know sort of run of the mill family. It seems that his father was a stonecutter, and Socrates may have spent some time as a stonecutter himself. He didn't have any of the trappings that usually pushed people into prominence in his um, in his time. Wealth, family background, all of that. But he did hobnob with the aristocracy. He did. You know, when people kind of made it to the top in Athens, the idea wasn't, oh, you keep working away at it. Like in our culture, you know, you're a top-notch lawyer, top-notch doctor or whatever, top-notch businessman, and you just keep working, keep working practically till the day that you die. Um, that was not at all the uh, value of ancient Athens. People aspired to a life of leisure. And so it was natural for Socrates, who enjoyed going out on the street and asking people about their values and testing their assumptions and talking to them, it was natural that he uh, would find himself socializing quite a bit with that upper class who had the leisure to do so. He himself lived a life of uh, genuine poverty. He didn't care for a lot of possessions and managed to do with very little with the support of some of his um, aristocratic friends. And yet he also talked to the common man, we could say, and also talked to some women, which was highly unusual in his age. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't make him out to be, you know, this great Democrat. I mean, he, he actually opposed democracy, but I think it's important not to impose our own assumptions on, you know, about what we value on Socrates. But he was ready to recognize intelligence and ability anywhere he found it. And yes, sometimes it was with women and sometimes he, he wanted to show and in one of the uh, of Plato's dialogues, we see him showing how a slave who has no formal education is able to come up with a geometric proof. And so, yeah, that's a very likable quality in Socrates. Now, one of the things we, we know about Socrates is the Socratic method. I used to be a teacher, and um, I don't think I ever read anything particular about the Socratic method, but I did try to teach that way. Tell us what that is. Yeah, I actually have a, <laughs> oh, a bone to pick here because I'm um, very much involved in education. And often, and I'm, I'm not saying this was the case with you, Francesca, but Often I see teachers talking about Socratic method as simply asking questions and getting kids to answer the, the, the questions. And it often turns out to be really just taking a lecture that the teacher might have given in a frontal way and kind of turning it into a series of questions and answers where the teacher is asking Oh, one of those leading sorts of questions. Oh, do you think it's A or B? You know, and everyone's answer is B, right? And often that's presented as Socratic method. That's not what Socratic method is at all. Socratic method is asking the kinds of questions that push you off the precipice. 
and you find yourself at the bottom thinking, oh my God, how did I get here? And then Socrates scooping you back up and saying, get back up onto that precipice and we're gonna do this again and again and again until we get it right. And so I'd love to see more Socratic method in the schools where teachers are really, really pushing kids to think very deeply and profoundly about what they're saying um, and not just anticipate the answer that the teacher wants them to give so the lecture can continue. Yeah, and I'm guilty as charged, by the way. <laughs> oh, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, and it's much more difficult to do the other and of course much more life-changing for students, which is something that Socrates did with almost everyone he met. Is that right? Yeah, he did. I just want to, you know, jump in with, I think for me as a teacher, one of the most moving moments in, I'm going to say Socrates' dialogues, but it's really the the dialogues that Plato wrote. Um, one of the most moving moments comes in the Latches, where two fathers are trying to figure out, okay, we want to educate our children. What should be part of the curriculum? And the, the, the particular question they're thinking about is, do we want to train our kids to fight wearing armor? This is the issue they're, they're considering. And Socrates, you know, ho-hum, he comes and he walks by. And they say, oh, Socrates, you know, we're on two sides of the issue. We want you to be the deciding vote. And he says to them, well, why would you just go by majority rule here? This is very characteristic of Socrates. Um, why go by majority rule? Don't you want someone who is actually an expert in the issue? And he says, what is the issue really? And this is what I love. He says, the issue here is education for the sake of the souls of the young men. Don't deceive yourselves into thinking that this curricular question it's just a curricular question. Oh, should this subject be included or not? We're talking about the souls of people when we educate. And let's make sure we educate well and intelligently. So, yeah. <laughs> what did he mean by souls? What is the education for? I, I mean, you've mentioned happiness. What is it? He didn't think what it meant to be happy was to be wealthy. But what does it mean to be happy? What does a soul need? So that's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a hugely complicated question. Um, essentially, Socrates drew a kind of equation between knowledge and goodness and happiness. Knowledge helps you make the correct, ethical, good decisions, and that's what will generate the most happiness. Yeah, he certainly, you know, souls is a kind of loaded word, you know, and I think about, you know, all of the um, the debates that go on about, oh, my God, can you have books that, you know, oh, my God, talk about homosexuality and the curriculum and aren't we corrupting our, our students? He's not talking about soul in a uh, in, in the kind of religious fashion that we often um, hear it brought in in, in debates today. He's, he's really talking about something very fundamental. What is what is the right way to live? I think that that's so important that the connection is that if you truly know things, you will choose the good thing to do, the ethical thing to do, and that makes you happy. And that really struck me because I know that as I have gotten older, as I matured in my life, I began to realize, I mean, this isn't recent, this happened already decades ago, but I remember there was a certain point when I realized that 
it made me unhappy to do something that I knew wasn't really quite kosher, whereas it really made me happy to do the right thing, even if it was a harder thing to do. And I think that that was the most fundamental lesson of my life when I kind of grew up and, and understood that taking accountability and doing the right thing is actually the way to be happy. Yeah, Socrates would agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, you know, another very moving uh, moment in his life, um, also recorded by Plato, is after he's been convicted and he's in prison and it's the death sentence that, you know, he's headed for. And his very good friend, Crito, he's been a friend all of Socrates' life, comes into the prison and Crito's got tons and tons of money and he can bribe the guards and they can figure out a way for Socrates to escape. And it turns out that a lot of people actually did escape from prison. This was sort of the way it was done and almost expected. And he's doing his best, Crito. He loves Socrates. He's doing his best to convince Socrates to find a way out of the prison and Socrates refuses on principle. You know, and some would see this, oh, he's got some kind of death wish. But his argument is, look, I have lived in Athens and benefited from Athens's laws all my life. It would be a betrayal of my, he kind of develops a, a kind of nascent social contract theory. It would violate my relationship with these laws whose benefits I have always enjoyed for me now to violate them. I don't believe that it was right for all of this to happen, but given that it happened through the uh, agency of these laws, I have no choice but to accept it. It's interesting that, that that dialogue, he ends almost on this ecstatic note. He's It's like, you know, the visions of, I, I don't know what, you know, but, but it's, it's ecstasy. And there is that I'm doing the right thing, um, and that makes me happy. That you described, you know, in a <laughs> thank goodness, not in a in the context of death, <laughs> but um, it's the same issue that you're talking about. And also, what you're saying is is he saying that if you violate the rule of law, I mean, you know, it's kind of a, a delicate thing. I mean, if you violate the rule of law, then then chaos ensues. Now, on the other hand. According to what the Athenians, his peers thought, he was violating the law by being such a free thinker in a way. So there's got to be some kind of balance. There is a society where the laws are bad, you know, violate the laws of Jim Crow, I would not say is a wrong thing. But we are seeing how when you violate the social contract, as our former president has done, how the dogs of chaos get loosed. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Socrates was fully aware of that. He acknowledged that there were unfair laws, that there was a lot of injustice. Um, and um, he was the victim of, of that kind of injustice. And he said, you know, what you do is you fight those laws, you know, to whatever extent you can. But if you're effort is uh, a failure, as it was in his case. Um, he did try to convince the jury that he was in the right and they were in the wrong. If you fail, you have no choice but to submit. Um, and, you know, I guess hope for the day when the laws will be changed. If you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with Deborah Lehman about her book, Socrates, A Life Worth Living. So Socrates 
did go to his death with a kind of ecstasy as well. He was 70 years old. He left behind a wife and three young children. He also understood that if he went into exile, his life would really not be the life that he wanted to live. So in some way, there was some willingness. On the other hand, the whole process of the trial, as you outline in this book, Socrates, A Life Worth Living, just seems so grossly unfair and a kind of vindication of his distrust of democracy. Tell us about Socrates' relationship to democracy. Yeah, it's a big issue. First of all, Athenian democracy was um, quite different from our democracy. First of all, I need to say right off that at kind of its peak during Socrates' lifetime, it's quite possible that only about 10% of the population had full citizenship and the rights that went along with it. And so, you know, when we say democracy, it's important to realize, well, women didn't have citizenship, slaves didn't have citizenship. If you had even one parent who was born outside of Athens, you also weren't a citizen. So huge swaths of the population were left out. Okay, but let's, you know, set that aside. The democracy, it was a pure democracy. Uh, most of what we call democracy today is actually um, a republic rather than democracy. We, we elect officials to represent us. In Athens, you represented yourself. You attended the um, ecclesia, the uh, assembly, and you voted on issues. And you, as a citizen, had a right to get up and try to convince other people of your view. And everyone had just one vote. And so it was, it was actually pretty remarkable for its time. But what it did mean is that um, everyone, um, everyone who was a citizen, everyone was there. You had the highly educated people, you had the people who had absolutely no education. Voting was by a show of hands there. And so you had a lot of peer pressure. People knew which way you were voting. There was clubbiness. You might feel that because you're a particular social group votes one way, you've got to vote along with them or you look bad or different or whatever. And so Socrates saw all of this and said, wait a minute, why is majority rule a sensible way to elect the people who need to have skills to lead us? And this is actually the same thing that came up in what I what I just said about um, the Lachey's dialogue, where you have these two fathers who say, oh, Socrates, come and, you know, break the tie, um, you know, help us decide, you know, what, what our kids should learn in school. And he says, well, why should it be based on majority rule? Now, having said all that, the fact is that um, in terms of elected officials and we can see lots of parallels, I, I suppose, now to, you know, do we always get the elected officials who can lead us best based on majority rule is a fair question. The fact is that in Athens, most officials were not even elected. They were appointed by lot. And that raised the question even more. Um, he, he just thought it was really a pretty insane way to um, appoint leaders. And I think it's Xenophon who has him saying, um, Xenophon is one of our other major sources other than Plato on Socrates and Socrates' idea. And he says, like, you wouldn't imagine building a ship with someone who's not an expert shipbuilder, right? Why would you imagine running a government, running, you know, essentially our lives, who, who's not an expert at that? 
And so he, yeah, he had pretty uh, negative views, uh, both of elected officials as well as officials appointed by lot. Well, so why did the people turn against him? What was their complaint? That That's a very complicated issue, uh, or I should say it's a multifaceted issue. Um, I'll tell you my... Um, my kids and I had a um, our, our running joke as I was writing this book um, was that my working title was Socrates, the whole philosopher. You may have to beat that out. I don't know. He's he was a difficult person. Um, he could be really snide. He could be really mocking. Um, you know, I think that his motivation. Well, I don't know about his motivations, but his his intent w- was good. His intents were good, um, but he could be pretty unbearable. And I think um, I think it's a common experience when people first start reading um, Plato's dialogues, you know, in which Socrates is a major uh, figure. You know, you often say, oh, God, who the hell is this guy? And so I have to believe that, uh, you know, a lot of people saw him um, in that light. He was uh, oh, he was a busybody. He interfered. He insulted people in public. You know, another really interesting point in his life is that after he was convicted, um, he he was declared guilty at his trial of, you know, the accusations. And it was between he then had the opportunity to suggest what he thinks he thought should be his punishment. He had a chance to, you know, come up with a proposal and the, the opposing side had a chance to come up with this proposal. And this is serious, right? He could be killed and in fact was. What was his proposal to the people who had just declared him guilty of these charges? I think you should um, pay for my meals because I prefer I perform such a good service for Athens, I should be uh, publicly funded. That's slapping people in the face. You know, so you can imagine someone like that around town, people just kind of want to get rid of. Okay, so there was the, the social element. Um, there was also the political element. Athens had a devastating loss in the Peloponnesian War. Things were a wreck. And at the end of the war, an oligarchy um, came into power and it was determined to eliminate any of its enemies and did some god-awful things. Um, Finally, they were deposed by staunch Democrats and there, there was a civil war. And when the democracy came back, there was there was supposedly uh, an amnesty, uh, but Socrates kind of got caught up in this net. Um, it was easy to accuse him on on other charges, but because Socrates had always expressed views against democracy and he hadn't been involved in deposing the oligarchy, which was guilty of terrible crimes. There was that aspect of things also. Um, So when the democracy came back into power, he was seen as a political enemy. The accusations themselves, there were two accusations against him. One was that he introduced um, foreign gods into Athens, and two, that he corrupted the youth. It's hard to understand the foreign gods thing, uh, because... It's not that he violates the public religion of Athens. He goes along with sacrifices and seems to do what is expected of him publicly. But we don't see him saying, oh, I don't believe in this God. I'm going to introduce that God. You know, so what exactly that charge is, is a bit unclear. It does seem that he questions the 
the classical myths. He certainly wouldn't have been the only Athenian to do that at the time. You know, so it could be just this sense that he's not, you know, respecting the the gods of the uh, of Athens um, sufficiently. In terms of corrupting the youth, probably a lot of people saw him encouraging young people to disrespect their elders because often the people that Socrates stopped on the street were, uh, you know, very respectable members of the community. And he would show how they were wrong and, and misguided in a lot of their assumptions. And often his audience consisted of young people, you know, so was he encouraging young people to show disrespect to their elders? Was he encouraging young people who belong to these aristocratic families who wanted their kids to go for it, go, you know, get yourself a lot of honor and respect and money. And he encouraged them, no, pursue a life of philosophy. You know, so was that a corruption of the youth um, that bothered people? A lot of stuff going into those charges. Actually, even some people who had voted for his acquittal ended up voting for his death after his uh, plea to become publicly supported. But on the other hand, he was right. Tell us a little bit about Socrates' legacy to us. If you could tell us one thing, what was the most important thing he left to us? Well, that's a that that one is you know how do we read Socrates? I'm gonna I'm gonna you know interpret it that way. You know, to us nowadays, what I would like to believe is his most important legacy is oh, and it's so countercultural, but a certain kind of humility, an intellectual humility. And and I say this knowing full well that when you read the dialogues, he doesn't sound humble at all. But his project was showed a tremendous humility. He wasn't trying to tell people what to think. He wasn't trying to tell people these are the conclusions. This is, you know, he wasn't imposing himself um, in any way, except for one exception. And that one exception is you need to lead a thoughtful life. That was like his the one kind of teaching that you can truly hold on to as his teaching that he really tried to convince people of. Otherwise, his work was really asking questions, listening to other people, drawing out what they said, helping them analyze it. He compared himself, um, his mother was a, a midwife and Socrates himself you know, compared himself to a midwife. He said, well, I'm a midwife, not of people, not of babies, but of ideas, of newborn ideas. And I need to test them to see if they're viable. Of course, that was back in the time when, you know, a weak baby would be, um, you know, put on the uh, the hilltop for exposure. They didn't waste their time on babies who wouldn't survive. And, and he's using that imagery also for um, people's ideas. Well, are they viable ideas? Um, let's examine them. What's wrong here? What's right here? Let's recognize when we're wrong and let's do it together. That really, I think, is the... Uh, you know, the amazing legacy of Socrates. And I'll add to it, you know, one of the problems for any biography of Socrates is he did not leave any written work himself. And so we're really at the mercy of all these other people who might have had their own agendas and their own, you know, ways of presenting things. And it was certainly at a time before history, you know, in quotation marks, you know, history, ob objective history, you know, if there's such a thing was recorded. There was no, not even an attempt at appearing objective, right? And Socrates never wrote down a single word. He was very suspicious 
of writing because writing makes things permanent. And he didn't want that permanence. He, he felt that this testing of our ideas together and trying to arrive at the truth is a constant project. We can never stop doing it um, if we want to lead worthwhile lives. That's the legacy. And as he said famously, an unexamined life is not worth living. And this is such a terrific biography of him, so thought-provoking, exactly in the spirit of Socrates himself. Socrates, a life worth living. Deborah Lehman, it's just been a joy to talk with you about it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Francesca. Next up, how to inoculate ourselves and others against the epidemic of false information. Stay tuned after the break. There he goes again, that thinking look is in his eyes. He's paralyzed in the middle of the crowd. He wonders to himself aloud, what is it we're really after? No, he doesn't ever come to any real conclusions. But something about the words he says They make me want to cast off all these chains Built of illusions Take the path of the philosopher instead And there he goes again Stopping people in their tracks What's he gonna ask? Justice or the forms doesn't matter, everyone ignores The man who claims that he knows nothing No, he doesn't ever come to any real conclusions But something about the words he says To cast off all these pains Built of illusions Take the path of the philosopher instead I want Socrates To divide my soul in three Show me what it means To live in that most fevered city Break my chains and drag me out Find out what the forms are all about I know this seems a bit eclectic But through the process of the dialectic he doesn't ever come to any real conclusions. But something about the words he says. He makes me want to cast off all these chains built of illusions. Take the path of the philosopher instead. Take the path of the philosopher instead. That was A Song About Socrates, composed and performed by Vivian Feldblum. Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. A tsunami of false information is washing over our global civilization. Whether purveyed by Fox News, Facebook, or Elon Musk's Twitter, spewed by corrupt politicians and corporations, or spread by the likes of QAnon, Alex Jones, or the Kremlin's troll army, false information is threatening to destroy us, making it nigh impossible to deal with the overwhelming crises we face. 
Is there anything we can do about it? Can we protect ourselves, our families and friends from falling victim to the lies? Yes, says my guest, Dr. Seema Yasmin. She lays out the strategies to inoculate ourselves against the viral epidemic of false information in her terrific book, What the Fact? Finding the Truth in All the Noise. While geared toward the young adult reader, it's really for everyone. Dr. Seema Yasmin is an expert on epidemics, both physical and informational. She's also a journalist, medical doctor, poet, and author of five books. Seema Yasmin, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you so much for having me. What the fact, finding the truth in all the noise, you call this book a map to the information ecosystem. And you say it's a viral ecosystem. Explain. So thinking here about how contagious information is, and if you think about how a meme or a tweet or a Facebook post goes viral, even to the point that it's translated into many different languages and seemingly takes on a life of its own. And we're surrounded constantly by this information ecosystem in which all sorts of data points and rumors and misinformation and disinformation are whizzing around and it can feel a bit abstract. And so to really bring that point home and eventually in the book to describe the mathematics of that contagiousness, because you can actually measure the virality of a rumor, I start off early in what the fact by kind of describing how lies go viral. What moved you, a doctor, to write this? The fact that there weren't many resources for young people really helping them think about how to wade through the information ecosystem. So really, there's a lot of negative chat, right, about, oh, fake news, and you can't believe anything you read, see, or hear. And I think, one, that's not true, because there's a lot of really good news and good information that's out there. But it also is a real disservice to young people to just tell them what's broken, without giving them the tools to fix it or to be really savvy consumers of information. And given how much we use those terms, misinformation and disinformation, it just felt really wrong that there weren't fun and accessible books full of stories and full of tips and tricks that were really accessible to young people. And and now that the book is out, I'm getting a lot of gratitude from educators who say we were desperate to teach this stuff. We just weren't given the resources and weren't always sure how to begin that conversation. So there's also a teaching guide that accompanies What the Fact, which is free and online. And it basically has chapter guides and lesson plans that bring the book to life. So now, You mentioned misinformation and disinformation, and you also talk about malinformation. You actually draw a distinction between these different terms. Tell us, what is the difference? So at the moment, this term fake news gets banded around a lot. And I don't like it because one, it's just super vague. What is it even referring to? Most news out there actually isn't truly fake anyway. But the second reason I don't like that term fake news is because it's been weaponized and used against people like journalists who are holding the powerful to account. So we've had former presidents, for example, kind of shout fake news anytime a reporter or anyone said something that that person in power did not 
like. And I think we have language out there that's super specific, super descriptive for all the different things that we're dealing with. And so it's really helpful early on to learn that language and then start labeling what you're seeing as truly what it is. So for an example, misinformation is false information that's shared to you by somebody who doesn't realize it's not true and who isn't trying to harm you. It might be like that friend who at the beginning of the COVID pandemic would say something like, hey, I heard if you gargle with salt water, you can't get sick with COVID. Now that's not true, but if they didn't realize that it wasn't true and if they weren't trying to hurt you, we can classify that as misinformation. That's really different from disinformation, which is still false information, but it's spread knowingly and it's spread with the intention to cause harm. And then you mentioned malinformation. That's accurate information. Actually, it's not false, but it's private, perhaps. It's information that should not have gone into the public sphere. And it was made public with the intention of causing chaos and harm. And there's even more categories described in What the Fact with examples of each kind. Yes, we're suffering in New York State here right now a massive disinformation campaign by the gas industry because as we we are trying to get legislation passed that will help us transition to a clean energy economy, mandate electrification in new buildings, heat pumps, uh, instead of fossil gas. And it's just astonishing how this disinformation is is happening. This was a, a bill that was we're trying to get passed for new buildings, but the gas industry is emailing all of their customers and taking out video ads and even doing phone calls, uh, robocalls, telling people that you're going to have to pay $20,000 to switch your system in your already existing home to uh, to heat pumps. Wow. Yes. And I've, I was reading your book and I was thinking about this, this massive disinformation campaign and how it actually is a life and death situation yeah. because if we don't yeah. shift our energy system, we're running out of time. Yeah. And this often is life or death in terms of the misinformation and disinformation that circulated about COVID, for example. We know that people died because they fell for some of the lies that they were exposed to either in real life or on social media. And it's really disturbing what's happening in New York State. I'm glad you raise it, though, Francesca, because it brings to light something I talk about in What the Fact, which is whether you're thinking about the lies that are spread about big oil, whether it's the lies spread about climate, whether it's lies spread about COVID, whether it's lies spread about elections and politics, it's often the very same techniques and strategies that are used to spread the lies. And so what I do in What the Fact is I break down the five key strategies that have used to dupe us and I talk about the fact that they are not new. They're just, you know, clarified a little or individualized for the particular lie that's being spread. But when it comes down to it, it's the same five strategies. What's really useful about that is once your brain is trained on what those five strategies are, you start seeing them everywhere. And you start realizing, actually, these are the same techniques that were used by big tobacco back in the day. Some of them come straight out of kind of big tobacco's playbook. And because what the fact is very solutions oriented, it's not just like, whoa, you know, doom and gloom. 
this one of the solutions to debunking this stuff and to building mental resilience against falling for lies is teaching people, oh, it's not just like what you think about COVID that's wrong. You can leave the very hot topic in the corner. You don't have to use facts to butt heads with somebody. What you do instead of focusing on the vaccine, the the bill, whatever it is that's so contentious, is you kind of like take a bird's eye view and you start to break down to people, why is it that you believe COVID vaccines are dangerous? And without hitting them over the head with facts as to why COVID vaccines are safe, instead, you kind of shine a light for them on the strategies, those five strategies that were used to lie to them and to dupe them into thinking that COVID vaccines contained microchips or made you magnetic or whatever the lie was. And actually, social psychologists and researchers have found that when you take that approach, which is the what they call the logic-based approach, where you're saying, I can see the strategies used to lie to you, that actually provides an umbrella of protection for that person against falling for lies about many other topics as well. So break it down for us. Um, briefly, what are those five strategies? The acronym is FLICK, F-L-I-C-C. And in the book and in the teaching guide as well, I think we kind of break down the taxonomy even more because you can flesh it out and kind of really get into the different techniques that are used to dupers. But for example, the F in Flick stands for false experts or fake experts. And that's when, you know, if you're not a doctor yourself, you're not a vaccine expert, It doesn't take much to roll out somebody who looks credible to the lay audience and who sounds credible, but actually is a fake expert saying things like, well, I wouldn't get this vaccine myself, for example. The L in Flick stands for logical fallacies. These are everything from like straw man arguments to ad hominem attacks, where instead of debating your argument points, the person starts attacking you as a person. So you start looking out for that too. The I stands for impossible expectations, which is also known as moving the goalposts. When when someone says, well, prove to me that climate change is real. And you do, and you give them a really good science, um, scientific evidence that proves it. Then they start saying, well, no, I want more. And you just can never meet their expectations. There are the two C's in Flick. Um, the first C is conspiracy theories, which are often used to spread these. And I kind of get more into the book into as to why our brains are so susceptible and so in love with conspiracy theories. And then the final C is cherry picking, which refers to cherry picking data, which people will do where they just look at the data that supports their argument and they seem to ignore or erase the data that refutes their argument. So I flesh it out more in the book, but once you get really comfortable with those five key strategies, you start noticing them everywhere and you start noticing different bad actors using them, whether it's from the Kremlin, whether it's from big oil companies, you know, like whoever it is, you start seeing the same techniques at work. Yes, and I have to say, uh, extend your definition of false experts because there are experts who are paid by, you know, certain corporations. I just saw this the other day. There was a contrast. I saw a study showing the contrast between studies, the new hydrogen technology, which uh, the gas industry is is touting. Independent studies all say that it's 
wasteful and is not going to help global warming. And then there is the studies that are being done by people who are actually being paid by the gas industry, which say that it's wonderful. And I talk about them in the book, Francesca, and someone much more clever than me came up with a term for them a few years ago and named them fracademics. At least the academics that are kind of in the pocket of big oil and pro-fracking companies, there's a whole kind of subset of people who are fracademics, who engage in fracademia, where they look and they do actually have the credentials and the educational background and qualifications that makes them extremely credible, but they're deeply biased because of where their money is coming from and, and who their allegiances are with. Oh, I love that term. That's great. I'm going to use it. <laughs> now, I'll just ID you now for our audience. If you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with Dr. Seema Yasmin about her book, What the Fact? Finding the Truth in All the Noise. Now, you mentioned the, the Kremlin. Talk a little bit about the impact of the Russian troll army on our elections, but also just today I was reading impact on softening American support for Ukraine. So how did we get so susceptible to the Russian trolls? Oh, the impact they have is huge. And I kind of go down the rabbit hole with the reader in what the facts will explain. The disinformation playbook that's really old, actually, it dates back to time of the Soviet Union and this information warfare, this these tools of propaganda were used by the KGB back then, and they are so effective. And I kind of list the, I think it's like the 10 steps as to how you spread disinformation using the KGB playbook. It's really clever, and it's still in effect now. And given how powerful and influential propaganda and information warfare is, you can see why it's so appealing versus having to drop bombs all the time. This, you know, information warfare can be subtle. It can sometimes be cheaper, but it can completely unravel democracy and trust in institutions in your enemy nation. And what we've seen with these trolls and these disinformation campaigns is they do their research ahead of time. If they want to unravel peace and democracy in the U.S., they're first investigating us who are American and who live here in the U.S. And they're saying, hmm, what's already fractured in that society? What are the, the weak points, the points where there's already some polarization in that country? And then they completely pray on those weaknesses, whether they've identified that there are underlying, underlying racism issues, whether they've uh, figured out that people are really worried about the economy or about immigration or about vaccines, perhaps, and then they jump in. And it's not just the US that's been attacked in this way. The UK was attacked, now we know, around the time of the national referendum to leave the EU, otherwise known as Brexit. Those campaigns were heavily influenced by these Russian trolls who were unleashed and weaponized to dismantle trust and to foster wide-scale polarization. You know, you said before that the way to counteract this is to point out to people the methods or the means by which they've yeah. been snookered. But you also say in the book that it's easier to fool a person than to convince them that they've been fooled. So first of all, why is that true? And how can we 
bolster our efforts. You know, it seems to me it might be hard to convince somebody they've been fooled even partly just for ego. They don't want to feel like they've been the target of, of a con. Our brains are really brilliant and fascinating, but they're also funky, Francesca. And they've evolved in that way because of survival. And I explain more about that in the book, that even though we love to think, I'm so rational, you know, I'm a really smart intellectual person. Of course, I make decisions based on facts. Actually, we evolved for our beliefs to be based on belonging, shared beliefs, are what banded us humans together and allowed us to outlive more predatory species. So when we think, oh my gosh, I can't believe that uncle thinks that the COVID vaccine makes you magnetic and gives you superpowers, it starts to make sense why a human can think those things if you remember how our brains evolved, why they evolved that way, that we evolved to have brains that are susceptible to stories. And then when you stop looking at it from an intellectualist point of view and from an interactionist point of view, it makes sense on two levels. One, why an individual could hold quite an absurd view anyway. Well, actually, it's to do with belonging. It's a shared belief. But second, it starts to make sense as to why conversations about things that should just be factual get so heated. Now that what the fact is out and it's aimed at young readers, but adults are buying it for themselves too. I'm getting all these emails from adults who are like, I'm using your book to help me with my family because we haven't spoken for a year and a half since the COVID vaccines came out. I got vaccinated. My family refused to, and they've excommunicated me. Like the the emails are horrible. They are so sad and it shouldn't be that, right? We should be able to perhaps have disagreements, But once you read that chapter about our brains, how they work, how we assimilate information, how we arrive at a belief, it starts to make sense that a conversation about something like COVID vaccines or masks even, not even something injected, just a a scrap of cloth, why that can get so heated as to disown your own daughter is because beliefs are completely tied up in our sense of identity. And once we start to understand that, but then use the evidence-based approaches I've mentioned in the book, which are the logic-based approach where you talk about flick, for example, and you use evidence-based approaches to debunking instead of just like, no, you're wrong. Haven't you read these 16 studies that say that approach is more likely to fuel the fire? The logic-based and the evidence-based approaches I mentioned in the book are more likely to be effective. You know, in your book, and, and it's something I've heard before, you say that telling stories is effective, whereas giving facts is not, because people get their backs up when you throw facts at them. But if we're supposed to use evidence, isn't that using facts? Oh, no, no, I think you're confusing it, because what I'm saying is facts are not stories. So don't hit somebody over the head with those facts, right? Our brains are susceptible to stories because stories are emotive. That I explain kind of like the hardwiring of our brain and how there's hormones that are released during stories that make the story really compelling, even if the story is a complete lie. That's why when the anti-vaxxers, for example, are really, really good at spreading their lies because they use stories. What does public health do? It goes in with pamphlets and facts, which are not emotive. So when I'm talking about use evidence, I'm not saying the facts. I'm saying use the evidence-based approaches 
in the book. So they're not facts, but they are strategies that have been studied and proven to work and be more effective in debunking myths rather than just hitting people over the head with more and more facts. Okay, so let's let's take an example. There was a member of my family who who resisted getting vaccines for a very, very long time and then just got one shot at one point. And we got into an argument about this. And she said, well, you know, you're using confirmation bias, she said, in my belief of vaccines. I tried to tell her the stories of the fact that, you know, I lived before there was a measles vaccine. I lived and I got measles and I got chicken pox. And that didn't do any good. How how could one approach somebody on something like vaccines using your evidence-based method? Yeah, so the first thing is to think about what that interaction might look like and whether it's more likely to be a series of interactions. When I teach this stuff to doctors and nurses who work with patients who are vaccine hesitant, the concern often is, but I have 10 minutes or I have eight minutes with them, right? We have to talk about their chest pain first anyway. How do you expect me to convince them in eight minutes or three minutes to get vaccinated? And the answer is, we don't. It doesn't work like that. People have formed these beliefs based on their life experiences, family histories. It's complicated stuff that you're not going to undo in three minutes or perhaps even in one interaction. So one of the first steps that I talk about is deciding whether it's safe for you to have this conversation. Say, for example, I'm a Muslim woman. If somebody's rapidly Islamophobic, maybe I'm not going to engage in a conversation with them about why they're wrong about my religion or my right to exist. But say is this an instance like the one you're describing, it's a family member, you love them enough and you're patient enough to have these conversations with them, still evaluate the fact that it's unlikely to be a one and done conversation. And doing that helps you reevaluate and reconsider how many conversations it might take, but also the fact that in that first conversation, maybe you're actually not going to say much. Maybe you'll ask a few questions, but mostly what you'll do is listen. And that perhaps, hopefully, will open up the door for more trust, more rapport, and more sharing um, and help that person see, well, yeah, you know, she doesn't agree with me, but she's not vehemently disagreeing. So perhaps I can share more of what I believe. What we have found is often people go into these conversations with arms crossed and this kind of attitude of like, but you're wrong about vaccines and I have the evidence. Let me just give you the information about the freaking randomized controlled trials that show these things are safe, for example. It doesn't work. It often backfires. People can kind of dig their heels in more. Also, what happens is when you have that approach of I'm going to hit you over the head with the facts you're not actually understanding where this person is coming from. And the reason I raise that as frustrating as it can feel is because our studies have shown that if you talk to 12 people who refuse to get the COVID booster, for example, you could get 12 extremely different reasons as to why they won't get the shot. Unfortunately, what we do in public health, though, is we'll hit all 12 of those people with the exact same one size fits all messaging as to why they're wrong and why they need to shift their belief. So this is another reason why I say initially you don't want to talk much. You want to ask some questions and you want to gather intelligence about why this person arrived at this belief, what led them to hold on to this belief, why they think it's worthy and what's so compelling about it. And that might be as far as you get in the first conversation. But my point is, without understanding why they think that, why they believe what they believe, you have 
very little chance of countering any of their beliefs because you don't even know why they hold them in the first place. So those are the first few steps. And then I go through more of the evidence-based approach in the book. But certainly, I think just reevaluating and realizing, even as a physician, in one consult, I'm probably not going to change your mind. But no, I want to leave the door open so you'll come back to me and you will revisit this conversation and you won't refuse to talk about vaccines because you assume I'm just so oppositional to you. Then I'm going to have more success in the long run. Wise words. And we are talking with Dr. Seema Yasmin. Her book is What the Fact? Finding the Truth in All the Noise. Now, you mentioned the word debunking before, uh, and you talk about something called inoculation theory, talking about vaccines. I mean, we, we need a disinformation vaccine. How do we inoculate ourselves against lies? A and start with pre-bunking. So pre-bunking is linked to inoculation theory, and it's this idea that if you give someone a, a warning symbol, a flag, an alarm ahead of the false information already reaching them, you could stand a greater chance of immunizing them against falling for that lie in the first place. So it's like, for example, what we should have done while Operation Warp Speed was happening and COVID vaccines were developed, being developed at record setting speed, what we should have been doing at the same time is being in the lab and saying, hmm, looks quite likely we're going to have safe and effective vaccines developed in a year. Never done that before. Let's preempt what some of the lies are going to be. Some people are going to say it was developed too quickly to be safe. Some people are going to say it's the first ever mRNA vaccine, therefore it messes with your DNA. And what you do is instead of unleashing the vaccine and then waiting for the lies to go viral, is you say to people, hey, it looks like vaccines are going to be available quite soon. If that happens and they get approved, it's quite likely you'll hear that one, they're unsafe because they were made too quickly, and two, that they mess with your DNA. And because you're going to hear those, I'm giving you a heads up, but I'm also going to tell you why those are lies and what the truth actually is. So this is actually quite a long-standing strategy that's been used, but it's proven to be quite effective versus sometimes debunking where someone's already heard something, already let it sink in, already formed beliefs around it, where you're trying to undo that belief. And I think what's helpful to know and what the book highlights is that we have a number of tools available to us. And it's good to know that they exist because then you kind of have this arsenal. And as opposed to always just taking the debunking approach or always using the fact-based approach, you can actually use the logic-based debunking approach and you can actually use pre-bunking instead. It's not that there's a one-size-fits-all approach that's best for everyone at every time. It's that there are different evidence-based strategies for countering the viral spread of misinformation and disinformation. And once you know that those exist, you can figure out what might suit a given person at a given time. Well, that's great. And the book is What the Fact? Finding the Truth in All the Noise. It's a wonderful guide. I highly recommend it to my audience. And thank you, Dr. Simi Yasmin, so much for talking with us here about it. Thank you so much, Francesca. It's been a delight. Dr. Simi Yasmin. You can find a link to a teaching guide to What the Fact by going to writersvoice.net. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Go to writersvoice.net to listen to or download past shows, plus find out more about our guests or read book excerpts. And follow us on Twitter at Writer's Voice, all one word. I'm your host, Francesca Rhiannon. <laughs>